Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. Where's Your Brother? A Historical Guide to Retooling. Since the early days of the sitcom, television programming has been considered an ever-evolving, ever-changing medium, both technically and in content. An expanding study of character and plot within the formulaic construct of a genre. A creative practice hardly made perfect in the early stages of a show's life, or further along in its run for that matter, as most programs are subject to severe and continual tweaking from their showrunners. Sometimes it's speedballs. The reasons behind these changes may range anywhere from substandard ratings and amended demographics, to corporate obligation and a head writer's mental abnormalities, as well as an executive's reluctant fulfillment of an empty promise to their mistress or boy toy, as the industry has made great strides toward gender equality over the years. Unfortunately, sex aside, two words that when placed next to each other cause me to shudder with revulsion, the quest for having one's cake and the desire to eat it too remains stifled in the presence of power, money, and access to premium washer fluid. As mentioned earlier, these artistic alterations, that is, shoots the camera a wink, can affect a show's overall tone, its setting, or focus, to name a few, and may occur as early as the show's conception or its pilot episode, or sometimes as late as its final seasons, which was the case in 1967 when actor Bing Bigsby, who played the sheriff and leading role in the long-running western sitcom Feudin, left the popular series before its final two seasons to pursue a promising career as a lady wrestler. The reasons are endless and often unbeknownst to the audience, and more often than not result in a revision of the characters before anything else. Whether it's an omission or addition of a character, a shift in the principal character, or even an adjustment to a character's persona, as was the case with the 1960s black-and-white classic Ollie Days, where after only five episodes, ten-year-old neighborhood terror Ollie David was retooled into a lovable pipsqueak with an odd gimmick of fondling his mother's furs. Incidentally, a change that would ultimately come back to bite the network when a major animal rights organization used the ex-face of poor Ollie David in their now-famous 1991 campaign. Retooling is as much an essential part of television and its relevant history as deception is a necessary component in happiness and success, especially if you want to get your hands on that fancy wiper fluid. Unlike the early novel-based miniseries of the 1970s, or to a lesser extent, the television event or the more recent revival of the anthology series, which have fixed lengths and a limited number of episodes, the traditional television series develops and matures, and eventually peaks, over a usually undetermined number of seasons, or as they're referred to in the UK, biscuits. This is the lifeblood of a series and is compounded of various arcs, both in character and story. Although the reasons for retooling are often lost on the fans, insights which have recently been made more readily available with the introduction of the internet and social media 
as well as the recent resurgence of carrier pigeons since the price drop in bird seed, even though roaming charges are worse than ever, they are always noticed. Whether the amendments are favored rather than opposed by viewers is entirely conditional and quite frankly a matter of taste or intelligence. Then again, factors aside, something either works or it doesn't. Take, for instance, the former and an adjustment to Mel Driscoll's modest, straight-laced dental hygienist Miss Robin Hartley from the hilarious 1973 sitcom The Mel Silver Show. Centered around the home and work life of dentist Mel Driscoll, played by comedian Mel Silver, the show's standout performance was in fact that of actress Patricia Benson, who played Silver's assistant. During the 24-episode first season, Young Miss Hartley was written as a mousy, high-principled, and hapless do-gooder that lived alone, spent her free time taking photos of her two cats, Galileo and Copernicus, posed in recreations of famous paintings from the Renaissance masters. Her social life outside of work was practically non-existent, and her romantic life well rivaled that of a spoiled slice of birthday cake. The showrunners, which were headed in part by Mr. Silver himself, felt the dialogue between Mel and his assistant needed punching up, and that Robin could play more to Mel's wry sense of humor if she had a bit more energy. So they changed Miss Robin Hartley from the timid introvert of season one to the wise, cracking, open-blouse man-eater audiences came to love over the show's seven-year award-winning run. The producers even slightly modified Galileo and Copernicus, only instead of cuddly cats, they were rewritten as cuddly boyfriends. This format lent itself to countless gags with disembodied voices and pitch black bedrooms, which has since become a sitcom staple. In fact, the Mel Silver Show was the first sitcom in television history to use the phrase, when you finish fiddling with those doorknobs, I'm over here. Another legendary character makeover, though much less embraced and resulting in public outrage, occurred in the post-pilot script pages of the popular 1986 American Family spinoff, Taking Stock. The series revolved around the Hampton family, an upper-class African-American family living in rural upstate New York, where they relocate in the first episode after the family heads leave their high-paying, fast-paced jobs as New York brokers to raise their children in a more tranquil and placid setting. After purchasing a big, beautiful farmhouse and a haul of livestock, the Hamptons quickly found that farm living was just as demanding as city life, and with much more to clean up. The series ran for eight seasons from 1986 to 1994 and survived both a network change and a murder charge. In 1992, actor Gary Parsons, who played the Hamptons' lovable old neighbor, Mr. Dixon, was accused of murdering a hot dog vendor at a Michigan sporting event after a dispute over the whereabouts of his footlong's missing inches. Given the Parsons' accused crime, his TV role as the white neighbor and the obvious hot dog genital parallel, it was no surprise when the media had a comically fueled field day, which still remains tough to ignore after the mere mention of the name Parsons. In the first episode of Taking Stock, which originally aired on May 17, 1986, the Hamptons had three children. The oldest, Noah, a stereotypical teenage football jock with little interest in studies, but a remarkable, yet far from surprising, knack for milking cows. The middle child, Harriet, a bookish preteen with aspirations of college, publication, and enslaving the male race, and the youngest, Myra, a seven-year-old wild child hell-bent on braiding and dressing up every animal on the farm. Unfortunately, future episodes were mended in the writer's room to meet sponsor expectations. 
Soon after the airing of the wildly successful first episode, the show and its network signed with the Maryland Fertilizer Company as their main contributor, and the writing staff was forced to make the necessary and immediate changes. Noah traded in his football and cleats for a seed spreader and a pair of shit kickers after eagerly taking the role of field manager. Harriet's studies shifted from mathematics and cancer research to compost and fish meal, and uncontrollable Myra was split into twins, Myra and Tyra, each with their own bag of manure mischief. Fans of the first episode nationwide boycotted not only the Maryland Fertilizer Company, but lawn care altogether, which resulted in the 1986 chain of bizarre slip-and-slide fires, of which, thankfully, no children or sloshed parents seeking a laugh from their barbecue guests were seriously injured. Not all of television's personalities are merely reworked or altered to generate ratings or appease contractual forces. As stated earlier, some are simply omitted, a job that pays roughly the same, if not less for writers, as their compensation, like the early pulp novelist, is solely contingent on the number of words they write, incidentally why the sudden shift to hour-long programming in the mid-1960s. This is absolutely true, and you'd be a fool to look it up. Most of these characters are lost, somewhere in the lonely and unforgiving depths of the off-season. A cyclical and nerve-wracking period in the life of a show, famous TV critic Connie Smigel so sardonically referred to as a calm and unbuttoned stent on the chopping block. And one would be hard-pressed to name a more memorable example of a deleted character than the disappearance of Astrid Blueblood, or Auntie Astrid, the 700-year-old high-born live-in relative from the 1964 vampire fantasy sitcom Family Fangs. Season 1 introduced audiences to the bloodthirsty and ditzy aunt of the wannabe suburban family, the Von Vamps, a century-old clan of vampires trying to pose as the all-American family in western Pennsylvania. Auntie Astrid lived in the family's attic and was given the shtick of constantly trying to turn everyone that came to the house. In one single episode, she turned a cable repairman, a claims adjuster, a mother from the PTA, a census taker, the neighbor on the left, the neighbor on the right, the dog across the street, a bowl of wax fruit, and an entire troop of nine-year-old evangelical Girl Scouts. Audiences must have regarded this writing impulsive and a tad hackneyed, because in the final episode of season one, Auntie Astrid ascended the staircase to her room and was never seen again. In fact, there wasn't even a single mention of the house even having an attic until the season four Christmas episode, in which the dad, Vlad Von Vamp, was tasked with tracking down the family's manger for their living nativity scene. A subtle joke the writers were pleased was not lost on the audience. Their youngest, a nine-month-old Titanic passenger, serves as the scene's baby. A wildly popular technique among writers and show creators, though more prevalent during television's first 50 years, Family Fangs was one of the first, but not the last shows, to get rid of a character by making them take the stairs. A TV idiom and industry term coined by television scholar Woodrow Stone in his acclaimed 1995 TV Guide retrospective, I'll be right back, I just need to run to my room. In the 1980s police drama Calling All Cars, Captain Charlie Lerman, walked up the steps outside the police station at the end of season one and has been putting in off-screen overtime ever since. The eldest boy of Cliff and Joni Rayburn from the charming 90s sitcom Early Birds went upstairs to finish his science project and not only failed to come down for breakfast the next morning, 
or any other morning for that matter, in all likelihood failed a science project. Little Amy Dwyer from Six of One chased a bouncing ball down the hallway and into the children's playroom, only to be passed over for her older sister's zit-on-picture-day storyline and was lost forever. Professor Morris was introduced as the gang's lifelong educator in season one of Classes in Session, but on the first day back from summer break, their devoted teacher missed the second bell and was nowhere to be found by audiences. The Fredericks family sold their house in the season one finale of Dad's Home and apparently forgot their grandpa Al. The list goes on and on. In some incidences, upwards of several characters have been written out of a show during an unexpected mid-season overhaul. In the case of 1992's Canteen, a kid's show centered around the campers and counselors of the California-set Camp Chinichcook, half of season one's characters lost their ride when the show's focus shifted from the stresses and triumphs of leading role camp director Karen Keel in season one to the romances and antics of popular camper and all-around troublemaker Zeke Savage in season two. Camp director Karen ended her first and only summer at Camp Chinichcook after being set adrift on Lake Wampak by Mr. Savage, while her distinct and insightful narration confirmed her place in the campers' hearts. Unfortunately for director Karen, the young heartthrob that played Zeke was the obsession of a rapid spreading preteen fan base the studio couldn't ignore. So they sent director Karen packing, along with all the curly-haired, pale, and freckled-faced campers she mentored, and made Zeke Savage the camp's proverbial top dog, surrounding him with a mess hall full of marketable, trapper-keeper, commercial-ready darlings. Another example of an entire cast being erased from a show's existence came from the unconventional stylings and sordid mind of comedy writer Troy Donovan. Frequent contributor to the innovative humor magazine American Fancy, Donovan was the creator of the raunchy 1999 Saturday evening late-night series Buoys, which followed a rowdy group of co-ed naval reserve recruits in Pensacola. During the show's first two seasons, audiences were presented with a colorful cast of wacky and sex-crazed characters, like Principal Seaman and head prankster Robert Hobbs, and the mysterious bass cook with no name who served food whilst wearing and speaking for a pair of hand puppets with googly eyes and insistent theories on Chappaquiddick. There was also Virgin Petty Officer Squeaks Mallory, the perverse and hardened Lieutenant Caitlin Brecker, and base journalist Kelly Walsh, who had the popular skill of being able to ingest an entire drum of raspberry jam in just under an hour. A zany group of depraved personalities that were left ashore during the show's season three premiere, and instead reimagined as a crew of talking rubber duckies with human mouths superimposed over their bills. Six months later, Buoys had become the year's highest-rated children's show. Similar to the practice of omitting characters is the tried-and-true introduction of new characters. Traditionally, these additions come in the form of a new neighbor, love interest, or boss, a common device in giving the show room to breathe and walk around in a new setting. More times than not, these new faces are given a wild-card essence, which complements the situational nature of most shows, causes the core characters unwavering distress and annoyance, the bane of the family's existence, the thorn in the lion's paw, the V-chip in the child's television remote. Incidentally, these are typically the breakout characters, the ones that steal the spotlight. 
That being said, television enthusiasts and historians alike would have a difficult time finding a more lovably destructive and iconic personality than that of Kevin Bustamante from the 1996 edgy cable treasure Home Business. The show follows single mother Meg Reynolds as she struggles running a small business from her garage while also bringing up three daughters and a 12-year-old vacuum. After airing several episodes, in an attempt to broaden their viewership and save face after an embarrassing PR stunt involving the cartoon depiction of a Y chromosome wearing a dog collar, the studio went out on a limb and tackled the subject of teen pregnancy in an episode entitled Jody's Got News. The storyline centered around the oldest daughter, 16-year-old Jody, discovering she's pregnant by her geeky secret boyfriend, Kevin Bustamante played by one-time commercial actor Will Warden. Originally slated as a one-off character, the live studio audience was so enthralled and smitten by Warden's portrayal of the eccentric high school sophomore that producers took notice. In the very next episode, Kevin all but moved into the Reynolds household, and for the rest of the series' run, walked a beautiful line between sympathy and mayhem. In one particular episode, Kevin pledges to find a job to provide for his soon-to-arrive daughter, so he hires out the family's house to a group of what he believes to be Austrian toy makers that are in reality arms dealers. In some incidences, the roles are reversed and it's the principal characters causing all the mayhem, which forces the new characters to be a product of the aforementioned shenanigans. A wonderful example of this occurrence arrived with the mere and unassuming sound of a doorbell, just 12 episodes into season one of the 1985 smash hit Party Line a comedy series set in the 1940s that centers around the lovable yet snarky, loud-talking Shepherd family in Brooklyn during World War II. Relying heavily on its ensemble cast, which included TV veterans Gary Simon as Artie Shepherd and Roberta Mays as Polly Shepherd, the show struggled early on to find a decent audience. Its premise of family matters, patriotism, and gossip hijinks, courtesy of a four-way telephone line shared with other houses on the block, should have been enough to draw in viewers. But after only airing nine episodes, the studio found themselves trying to combat the public's waning interest. Enter the family's new next-door neighbor, Rita Marie, played by young no-name actress Melissa Duffy. Miss Marie introduced herself to the family as the new elementary school teacher with a traveling salesman for a husband, but growing audiences knew her as codename Muskrat, a German spy sent to America to collect intel. Unfortunately, she landed in Brooklyn and moved next door to the Shepherds. Quickly, through the children's innocent gags and hilarious bits of mistaken identity, the old but entirely unlucky spy would spend the next six years being comically fooled and outwitted by the unknowing, dysfunctional, yet loving Shepherd family. So in conclusion, it's quite clear that retooling is an established yet adaptive part of the broadcasting process and structure which doesn't appear to be in danger of being cancelled anytime soon. Unless retooling itself is retooled, in which case, showrunners seeking a stronger audience will do away with gimmicks and story amendment and simply send checks directly to the viewers, along with frozen steaks and colonic Groupons. production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. 
with an introduction by Nicole Kalasich and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scoville. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.